He's the talk radio guy and best-selling author who sees life as an ongoing version of Forrest Gump. She's the award-winning TV reporter that gave up the if it bleeds, it leads mentality of the news. Two different points of view, from parenting to politics, from football to finance, from the environment to education. If it's going on in the world, these two have an opinion. Here is John and Jen. Hey, welcome back to the show. I'm John St. Augustine. Joining me, my co-host with the most from all coasts. <laughs> That's pretty good, huh? Not bad. I'll take it. <laughs> Hi, John. I'm Jen. Nice yeah. to see everybody here. Hear everybody again. How are you doing? I'm dragging behind, sister. What in the wide world of sports is going on here? What did uh, you do? Well, I'll tell you, Slim Pickens, what's going on here. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, and one of the reasons I was kind of looking forward to doing this, I would look forward to doing all the shows with you, but especially this one, because this is a bit out of character for Johnny. Okay. Back in the day, it was totally in character, but this is a little bit different, and it's for a special occasion. So, I have a friend of mine who played in Super Bowl One and Super Bowl Two, Jerry Kramer. Mm -hmm. He just went to the Hall of Fame in 2018. He has written three bestsellers on the game. His most famous book is Instant Replay, The Green Bay Diary of Jerry Kramer. He wrote it along with the late, great Dick Schapp, uh, author and and, uh, journalist. And this is old school, old world stuff. We're talking about the Packer teams of the late 50s, 60s, the real meat years, I think, of the NFL. And so when Jerry wrote the book with Dick, um, nobody knew they were going to be going into the Super Bowl. It was just playoff stuff. So anyway, it turned out to be a big deal. And I've known Jerry at least 30, 35 years, somewhere in there. And there's a whole story how we connected, which we don't have time for here. But the man's now 86. Mm-hmm. And um, he is near and dear to me, but not as near as he usually is because he lives in Boise, Idaho. Except for last night when he was here in Chicago. Uh-huh. Yeah. So there's like the perfect storm happening here. Now, Jerry was uh, in Chicago to receive an award from the IBEW, the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers. Try and say that about midnight five mm-hmm. times. Mm-hmm. And he was getting an award. <laughs> He's done a lot of work for, uh, like, it's like child ID. He helped raise millions of dollars to get ID services done. So if, if an, you know, a kid gets snatched, there's an ID thing here and stuff. So he's done all this incredible work that no one really hears about outside of the football stuff, which is what he's most known for, but just so much work he's done for nonprofits. Some of the things that I'm involved in, he always donates autographed items and stuff. And this is, again, there's maybe six guys left from those first two Super Bowl teams. That's it. Mm-hmm. They're all gone. So he's he's pretty rare among that species. So he calls me, he says, and it's like two people call me Johnny. He's one of them. The other guy gets away with it because I like him too. And he gets on, he says, Johnny, I'm coming to Chicago. We got to get together. I know what that really means. Mm-hmm. Headache so, in the morning is what it means. Basically. <laughs> so he flew into Chicago with his son, Matt, who's just a great guy and uh, kind of helps with Jerry getting around and stuff. He's in a wheelchair. He can walk, but it's just at 86, getting in out of airports and stuff. You know, it gets a little dicey. So he's in Chicago at one of the major hotel chains, which will go unmentioned because they don't support or sponsor the show yet. No. They may never. So I'm not mm-hmm. going to mention it. Okay. Well, it also turned out that the president was in Chicago. And president Biden, that particular president. Okay. And Chicago, if you may not have gotten this up at Evanston, but you know it was like um, Back to the Future here, military-wise. There was stuff flying in the air I hadn't seen in 20 years. Wow. The Chicago PD was out in major full force, uh, plain clothes as well as the uniformed officers. There was, uh, as I went down to the hotel, there were you know our snow plows loaded with cement in case somebody tries to ram the place. It was a big deal. Mm-hmm. So getting in there was a little dicey. Anyway, I get in, we connect. And it was so great to see him. I, I hold very few people in the role of a hero, meaning someone who totally transcends, in my opinion, totally transcends what they're known for to do more than that. And Jerry, of course, known as a football player, but just so much more. I just admire the man so greatly. And um, we sit down, we're having a little bit to eat and or pour some you know, brown pop in a glass with a little cube in there, you know? Yeah. And a little bit more. A little bit. Anybody else want more? Sure, I'll take another one. You want another one? Okay, let's have another one. Next thing I know, you know, he's wearing this Hall of Fame ring on one hand. He's wearing Super Bowl II ring on his other hand. And he's just, he doesn't have hands. He's like a giant sloth. Mm-hmm. His, he's got these enormous mitts on him. Well, a table away, there is a whole group of IBEW workers from Wisconsin. Yeah, hey there. Oh, boy. Oh, yeah. And mm-hmm. they, as soon as they figured out who he was, that was it. And 
I don't know, five hours later, maybe six, Jen? Did you get any sleep uh, at all? No, I didn't get any sleep. <laughs> so totally unprepared for the show, but man, did I have a hell of a night. See, and that's the best part of it. You were living your life and you were chalking up new memories and good for you. Yep. Yeah. That's really awesome. We tried to put Maker's Mark out of business is what it was. <laughs> Maybe <laughs> they could be our first sponsor. Hello, a, Brown Liquor. <laughs> that's right. I put a serious dent in the, the supply of Maker's Mark at this large hotel that goes unnamed. Yeah. And, you know, we, we started talking and he, he is a, um, he's basically a poet that played football is what he is. Mm-hmm. And he quotes everything left and right. And Invictus is his favorite uh, poem. And he, he talks about that. And and this is a guy who has basically built his life on like six principles, you know, mm-hmm. commitment and discipline and integrity and drive and all the things you, and we, we have these conversations all the time and it bears worth repeating on this show because it, sometimes we get lost in all the fluff of life coaches and, you know, 14 ways to be successful. And it really comes down to some basic elements. Right. And one of the things that Lombardi was really known for, and, and he says, John, to this day, Vince Lombardi died in 1970. To this day, he, you'll, see, you'll see his plaques all over the world with these simple sayings, right? Mm-hmm. So it was just a great, great night with a great, great guy. And what are some of the sayings that resonate for you that you remember? Or at Winners least the takeaways? never quit and quitters never win. Mm-hmm. And that winning isn't the only thing. No, winning isn't everything. It's the only thing. And what he meant was you can't always win the game, but the effort. Mm-hmm. The effort is everything. And I can't tell you, I never played football in the NFL. I played high school, college, and semi-pro, which was basically semi-parole, if you get mm-hmm. down to it. <laughs> and But those basic tenets of the game itself, as rough and tough as that game is, and as many hard knocks as I took and things like that, the game's lessons that I was able to extract and apply to business mm-hmm. have been, you know, everything for me. Yeah, discipline being one of them yeah. especially. And that's why I respect you so much because not a lot of people have discipline these days. And I'm sure you heard the rumblings about what's happening in the Chicago area over Steve McMichael. As many know, he's suffering from ALS. And so there's a huge letter writing campaign, uh, Team Mongo asking fans to write letters because he was not included in the induction uh, for the Football Hall of Fame, which is happening, I believe, this August. Uh, And they're really hoping, you know, his, his Super Bowl 20 cohorts are trying their best and all of his fans to get this letter writing going so they can hopefully add him onto the list. I don't know what the probability of that actually happening would be, but you know, Mm -hmm. Mongo was number 76. It was pretty great. He was pretty great in his day. You know, and that whole letter writing thing started with Jerry Kramer's daughter. Wow. So back in the day he was like eligible, you know, within 10 years or so when he, when he retired in 68, 12, 13, 14 times he was nominated and never went in. Mm-hmm. to the hall it gets over like 35 40 years wow. and he had basically said screw it i'm done with it you know he's had a great life he's not complaining super bowls everybody knows him he, he has the most famous block in quote nfl history the ice bowl right and his daughter decided alicia jerry's mm-hmm. daughter alicia decided she's going to start asking fans to write this had never happened before mm-hmm. so what's happening with with mongo is was started by jerry's daughter a, a few years ago and she started asking fans to write to the pro football hall of fame you know, and then she also asked some of the people that Jerry had played against or his teammates to write. And pretty soon, you know, you get 150,000 letters dumped on your desk in Canton. You can't mm-hmm. ignore it. And that's kind of a, you know, it's a system that's kind of awkward. They get a bunch of sports writers to vote and all that kind of stuff. And most of them have never played the game. And what happens after a certain amount of time, you get forgotten. You know, what have you mm-hmm. done for me lately and just about everything. But no question, I think Steve McMichael absolutely deserves to be included uh, hopefully, you know, it's not posthumously, but it's not looking good for the big guy uh, with ALS. So uh, I'm in, you know, I'm all in. Mm-hmm. If we can, if somebody's listening to the show and they want to write, it's just Canton, Ohio Pro Football Hall of Fame, mail mm-hmm. it. Uh, he's uh, he's part of that uh, Buddy Ryan 46 defense. It's just incredible stuff. I've met him a couple times at events. Jared Payton and I are pals. Yep. yep. And I, I've met him a few times and he is just everything. You want, I got a quick Steve McMichael story. You want to hear this? This yes, is please. so funny. And this is actually to do with somebody we both know on radio, Jonathan Brandmeier. Mm-hmm, Johnny B. So Johnny B. Back in the day, Johnny B. was massive in Chicago. He was a huge mm-hmm. name. And apparently, he'd, you know, he'd do all these pranky, weird, quirky events and stuff. Right. So he was going to have midget ice hockey. Which now you couldn't say. You couldn't. And I right. just said it, so I'll probably mm-hmm. get yelled at by somebody. Yeah. But now, back to this, he was going to do midget ice hockey. And mm-hmm. for some reason, it was in Steve McMichael's very large backyard. Because this is the 80s, you know, and this was all right. going on. They're the... They're the 
talk of the town and Johnny B was top of the heap. So they're going to do this thing. They, I guess they flood part of McMichael's yard and it's all, you know, for radio and gags and stuff. And they get a, six or eight little people mm-hmm. to play hockey. Mm-hmm. And apparently McMichael had forgotten about it or he had some brown pop too at one point, I'm sure. Right. And he walked out and he saw these little people. Am I doing it okay? Little people? Yeah, yeah. You're yeah, doing he's, great. okay. He's, all these little people skating around in his yard. Apparently he didn't like it. Mm-hmm. So he walks inside, he picks up some very large piece of furniture. He's from Texas. So he's got right. that drawl. And he takes this piece of furniture and he comes walking out, lifts it up over his head while they're recording this for air. And he goes, ain't going to be no midget hockey tonight. And he throws this piece of furniture and cracks the ice, and they all fall down like bowling pins. Oh, no. <laughs> so that's our mongo. Ain't going to be no midget hockey tonight. <laughs> that's so funny. Because you know what? It's so interesting. I got to meet him several times as well over the years um, when I was a columnist, when I was a reporter, whatever. He was always in the news for something, whether he was running for mayor or wrestling. You know, he was just that character. He was a larger-than-life character oh, yeah. that kept going. And um, at, when he sang in a band with Dan Hampton and all of that fun stuff. Mm-hmm. But he was always very, very kind. You know, he, he, he was just very respectful, even though he, <laughs> he wasn't that morning on Johnny B's show. Oh, I know. <laughs> he wasn't quite in kind that day. But, but to... Uh, to myself as a journalist, he was always kind. And I'm the, sad uh, for his journey right I now. I know. It's, it's tough awful. stuff to see that. I, I uh, Last time I saw him, it was the dedication of the Peyton and Hallis statues at Soldier Field, which is pre-COVID, so at least three years ago. Mm-hmm. And they were all there, all the 85 Bears, of course, and it was a great deal. And I was always honored to be there and be part of all that. And, uh, you know, they all look like they could still play at that point. You know, there are these guys who are only in their 50s and, you know, mm-hmm. maybe a couple into their 60s. But... Um, it was really uh, difficult. It's like a lot of things. You see these larger than life, as you said, incredible physical specimens. And ALS is just a devastating, devastating thing. And, you know, it, it's something he's not going to come out of. And he knows that, but he still insists that, you know, uh, you know I'm going to give it till the, till the end and I'll lift my middle finger. Then, you know, I'm gone kind of deal. Yeah. 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 It's Good so, guy. It's, it's, you know, and it also too, just the whole moment of realizing how, quick it can all go right we you know we've talked about this many times off the air but you know my father dying at the age of 56 and here you know mongo is only i don't know let's look here he was born in 1957 64 he's 64 years old i mean that's young that is really young so as we venture into what i call now the back nine which is anything over 50 i'm sorry that's your back nine if you're a golfer you get it you know what are you going to do with your back nine if if you were finding out that you were faced with something how are you going to how are you going to deal in and you know i i came last weekend i was in uh virginia beach for part of the weekend, and we didn't even touch on this last weekend when we talked uh, with Stephanie Arle- Arnold, our mutual friend. Mm-hmm. Uh, she was a speaker at the Edgar Casey Institute, well, yeah. uh, the Association for Research and Enlightenment. It's been around since, gosh, I don't know, I think it was 1931 when that started. So this guy was a trailblazer on intuition and all of these things. He was called the sleeping prophet because he would lie down horizontally and get all these messages and downloads. And all these thousands of cases documented in books and in this library and this beautiful facility and such. I think you spoke there, didn't you? Haven't you been a speaker there at the Edgar Casey? I, I haven't. Like I haven't. No, I haven't spoke there. But Charles Thomas Casey, his grandson, I believe, and I were connected for quite a few years oh, uh, when I was doing radio. Yeah, it's great stuff and really yeah. interesting. Very interesting. And so what Edgar Casey's through line of all these thousands of readings is, you know, what is the meaning of life? What is your soul's purpose, if you will? to love and be loved. That's it. That's really the through line. So are you allowing love in and then giving love back? Not just giving to a dysfunctional level. It's got to be a give and take. There has to be both and. And so think about that. And, and, I, and I just did a video about this this week. You know, put your buckets right in front of you, your family bucket, your work bucket, your relationship bucket. Are you surrounding yourself with people who help you feel loved and then you in turn love back. I was just having a deep conversation with my son about this, a teenager. I got a 16-year-old who's dealing with, you know, first heartbreak, right? First loss, first breakup. Oh, the first one is the deepest, right? Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, man. You remember your first love, don't you? End of the world. End of the world. <laughs> and I said, you know what? I don't think she gives you as much as you give her. 
and you deserve someone who gives as much as you give. And he just kind of can't wrap his head around that. He's like, I did everything right, you know, and I'm like, oh, you're, my heart just bleeds yeah. thinking that he's in so much pain. But really, it's a give and take. You can't just be the giver and not get it back. And it's, it's you can't give under the condition that you're going to get it back either. It's got, it's this really interesting dance that we're all learning. So, you know, as I watch these stories about Steve, and I know, you know, that Steve in the later years, you know, has gotten very spiritual and, and really kind of looking back and cataloging everything that happened, it really kind of puts things in perspective as we go day to day. Yeah, you know, um, Kramer always talks about the pieces that are uh, left undone. And he says, you know, I've been out of football for 50 years or more. He mm-hmm. said, but I wear this ring not to prove that I played the game, but to prove that I survived the game on some level. Because it's a very, at that level, NFL, we both know and have friends that have had serious difficulties from, from pro football. Oh, sure. And um, he, he talks about, though, but once that's done, what are you going to do? You know, he, you know, once the ring has lost its luster and once the phone stops ringing, and when you're by yourself after all that stuff you accomplished on the field, the really important stuff comes when you're out of there and and you know Walter Payton was known you know after he left the game to you know to bending over backwards I worked with him for two or three years and I watched this guy on a daily basis he would go into Pay- Walter Payton Incorporated he'd answer the phone for eight hours mm-hmm. nobody knew it was him till he started right. goofing around the phone he put himself into everything he could possibly find to make up to some degree for the hole that's left behind when you play a game at that level and you got to figure out stuff to do and Kramer talks about, you know, to this day, here's this man who's 86 years old. They're taking pictures with him like he's Elvis, you know. And I realize, and he says, John, some days I still don't believe it. All I did was play football for 10 years, and here I am more than a half a century later, and people still want to, you know, connect to me. And it goes back to the emotional connection we have to games and you know, the sport itself and all that kind of stuff at a different time, much like a Camelot. Uh, but I think that's why I admire him the most, you know. Football is what it is. When he played and retired, I was 10 years old. Right. So that's not in my wheelhouse, but what is everything since then? And I'll tell this real quick story, and then we're going to jump into some tunes here. Um, so many great memories with Jerry on the road, and, and most of them I can't share here, quite frankly. The, <laughs> the language, the language, Jen. Oh, the language, the, the brown liquor. Oh, yeah. It goes on and on. We were in uh, a golf thing together in Upper Michigan, where I used to live for many years. And I was on the radio up there, and obviously people knew who I was, and they knew he was coming to town. It was a charity golf thing with celebs in it. And somebody reached out to me and said, you know, my dad literally has weeks to live. Is there any way when you guys are done golfing you can stop and, and see him? And, and on one hand, you know, remind me what I said about people wanting to see Oprah before she died? Right. Well, apparently... Before the, they died. Right. Before, yeah, well, and before she died, maybe. Oh, who sure. knows? yeah. Mm-hmm. But... Um, uh, but yeah, so this wasn't like the guy was asking me. It was the daughter of the man who was who was gravely ill. Mm-hmm. And so I said, well, I'll mention to him, but we'll see what happens. No promises. And I don't even like to put that on him or anybody, you know, to say, hey, by the way. So I mentioned it when we got in the cart early in the morning. We played a nice day of golf, just nine holes. It was still fairly early in the day. And we finished. And he says, now, where's this old boy live? And I said, well, it's not too far here. And he goes, well, let's go see him. So, okay. So we drive up and they left the garage door up for us to walk in just in case we showed up. And so we walk into the garage, and I'm behind Jerry, and this, there's like four steps that go up into the house from the garage, and he's up in front of me walking, and I'm looking under his left arm, like through there, as soon as he opens the door to the house, and I can see this guy sitting in the living room, you know, with tubes in him and monitors and all this kind of stuff, looks like death, basically. Right. And Jerry yells at the top of his lungs, any Packer fans in here? Aww. And the guy turns. And looks at him and like rises like Lazarus from the dead. Mm. He stands up in this chair. He goes, hell of a block, Kramer. (laughs) And Jerry, they walk over like they went to high school together. They sat. And next thing you know, you know, the doorbell start ringing and 40, 50 people that just happen to be walking by show up. Mm. And I'm sitting back in the, the, you know, the uh, drinking coffee in the kitchen watching this scene Mm. and watching what he has used his platform for. And just nothing but respect. And, you know, I'm sure that stuff goes on with some of the, the newer athletes these days, the young guys. I, I see it on TV. But there's no cameras there for this right. one. It's just, it was a great memory. We were talking about last night. The, the man did pass six, eight weeks later. Mm-hmm. And we talk about that. And, and, I, and, and I just, you know, such admiration for those 
type of acts, as you were just mentioning, to love and be loved, to give that out, mm-hmm. because he knew without all those people, he didn't have the life that he's enjoyed. Absolutely. Gave it right back. Yeah, That is really a wonderful story. I love that. Thank you for sharing that one. There you go. Lisa D., welcome back to the John and Jen Show. Oh, I'm so happy to be here. And I have to tell you, that was one of my dad's favorite songs. That and oh Bad, God. Bad Leroy Brown. Can't beat it. <laughs> Can't beat it. Yeah, and, and, and I'm just throwing in a digital dart here. I'm like, well, I just going to grab some music for today. And there it is. And I kind of threw it in there. So it went well. And part of the reason I put it in, too, in 1971, I was looking at the prices and how we lived back then, Lisa D. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's yes. a little different than it is now. But, you know, to me, let me just pontificate, bloviate, and verbally defecate for a second because I know you're going to straighten me out. <laughs> So here's the deal. I remember clearly in the 70s, because I was coming of age and driving in those years. I remember, of course, Vietnam and Watergate and all that crap. Uh, But I remember going to the gas station and filling the car for $10, right? And it was a 300-gallon tank on a 1959 Impala. I'm kidding, but it was a big car. Mm -hmm. And I think what happens for people is we don't remember the things we should, and we forget the stuff we shouldn't. And to me, there's this arc. And because I remember how things were, I know that this is cyclical. You know, the things that we're going through now, inflation-wise and money-wise and gas prices and all the rest, and even with the war in Ukraine, you know, if you're around long enough, you realize this is not new. What is new, though, is maybe how we respond to it and what we can do to alleviate some of it, and I think that's why you're here today. I absolutely agree, and I I was a little bit older than Jen when that happens. I remember Watergate and OPEC and the oil embargo and, you know, long gas lines, and, you know, one of my favorite movies is Miracle about the 1980 hockey team, and, you know, Mm. I remember watching it and seeing they had one of the scenes depicted the gas lines, and we do forget, John, and we do forget that this has happened before, we've weathered it, and we've come through it. Yeah. I do remember the gas lines because we had a Volkswagen bug, you know, and um, the VW bug ran out of gas and because we were always on fumes, always on fumes. And so there we were, you know, on this long road in the middle of nowhere. It was cold. We ran out of gas, had to push the car. You know, my brother and I were, you know, five and six or something. It was an absolute horrible memory. So that imprinted this PTSD about running out of gas. Like literally, my parents, my mom would say, you know, we would literally be driving and have a full tank of gas. And I would say, do we have enough gas? (laughs) (laughs) And that was probably before they had the light to tell you you were going to run out of gas. Exactly. Uh It was. And I remember every time I got in the car, I would look over to see how close was it to E because I didn't want to be pushing a car with my little, you know, patent leather shoes again, ever again. Well, I remember being on vacation in the great western states and you know, my dad saying we need gas and me looking over his shoulder and, you know, my angle wasn't right. And I swear to God, I thought I was going to be in that situation, Jen, pushing the car in the badlands of North Dakota. Ooh. You know, for me, it was my first real kind of paying job was Dunkin' Donuts. Then I graduated from there to Broadway Surf Shell, which is long gone, but it was at like Diversity and Broadway mm-hmm. in Chicago, which is a really interesting area in the 70s. Really <laughs> yeah, interesting. Yeah, it was. Yes. And I'll never forget the gas lines. You know, I, I, you'd walk up to the window and say, sir, we can only give you $4 worth of gas. And they wanted to pummel you like it was my fault, right? Mm-hmm. Like I created OPEC. I didn't. And... <laughs> And they, it got to the point where the guy says, the owner of the station said, I'm going to put in a self-serve pump. That way we don't have to deal with this. And there's a way to you know, set the pump, I believe, pretty rudimentary, but you could set it to only pump a certain amount of gas. I can't remember how it was. A long time ago. Mm-hmm. And I thought, who in the world is going to pump their own gas? No one's going <laughs> to ever pump their own gas. And now you you couldn't find a full-service you know, station anywhere. And, and the idea back then, there was some nuance about maybe it was a little cheaper because you didn't have to pay me to do it or whatever the deal was Correct. right so you know it all changes and i think that's one of the things that we make every attempt on this show to do is to at least retain some perspective so the situations don't swallow us like they seem to easily today we didn't have all the digital downloads and outlets back then which i think kept a lot of this stuff at bay there's four channels on television how bad could the world be right now it's everywhere so Anyway, with all that being said, real quick, in 1971, the average cost of a new house was 25 grand. The average income per year was 10,600 dollars per year. Monthly rent would set you back a whopping 150 bucks. Here's our favorite: cost of a gallon of gas, 40 cents. <laughs> United States postage stamp was eight cents, and you can go to the movies for a buck fifty, and you two could go out and get a nice two-piece knit suit. 
for nine dollars and ninety eight cents at Sears. <laughs> Sears, it's Sears over there. Oh there you wow! Go. Well, I was just looking a month ago. Gas was four bucks and thirty five cents average for a regular gallon in Illinois. This is, and now the current average in Illinois is four seventy eight. So you know, I can't find any for under five dollars around where I live. I got to go far and wide to get four seventy eight. So it's just it keeps going yeah. up and up. And, and so, think about it: just twenty four yeah. months ago. They couldn't give this stuff away because of the pandemic. Nobody was driving. Right. Gas was right. it bottomed out. The oil was at zero. So there you go. Mm-hmm. Well, hopefully Lisa can give us some tips on what we can do with these high gas prices, with like you know summer coming up and Memorial Day and travel and all these things. I'm guessing this is going to impact whether people go anywhere this summer. I think so. You know, I think there's always ways to do it. And, you know, I always try to bring a charitable component or a neighborly component into it. So I think, John, you're right that we're being bombarded daily with 24-7 with news. And we feel like Chicken Little and the sky is falling. But the sky is not falling. And we can be smart about this. And, Jen, you know, for years I've preached this, you know, even before the pandemic, I would try one day a week not to move my car to literally lessen my carbon footprint. I thought the way we get less dependent on oil and gas is for all of us to do our part. And I thought, well, that allowed me to explore my neighborhood, to walk to local markets, you know, to get some exercise, to not move my car one day a week. Little did I know a pandemic was coming and I wouldn't move my car for weeks. But, um, (laughs) you know, and I know that's not feasible for everybody, but I was thinking like, you know, if everybody could think about that, like, do you really need to move your car every day? Are there things that you could combine and that you could do on a single day or a single errand or once a week? Could you also work with your neighbors? You know, we carpool for our kids and think nothing of it. Why don't we carpool? pool for our errands why don't we talk to our neighbors you know we're saying we're so isolated because of this digital age and we're we all have our heads stuck in our phones uh, most of the time like why don't we pick our head up and just like borrowing a cup of sugar or something saying hey i'm going to the grocery store do you need anything or do you want to go with me you know kill two birds with one stone you get to meet your neighbor you get to be friendly and you know you're saving gas i mean one of you's driving this week and maybe one of you drives next week i think there's ways that we can be really creative um, about how we use gas and lessen our footprint on being dependent on gasoline. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I also think too, there's Divi scooters now, not just the Divi bikes. You know, there's all these Divi things all over, at least I'm seeing them in Evanston and in the Chicago area I saw on the news, having these these portable rentable devices that now that it's warming up are options. Absolutely. Scooters, bicycles, um, you know, there's many ways that we can get around now. And if you have public transportation in your area, I know that's a big topic with the infrastructure bill that was passed, but the you know, many areas don't have infrastructure um, for mass transit. I mean, coming from the state of Michigan, where, you know, we wanted automobiles to be on the road. So we definitely have very little public transportation. I know that could be a recommendation that many people can't access. But I always think about hopping on the L in Chicago or hopping on the Metra or a bus to get from point A to point B to you know, do what people do in Europe, do what people do in other parts of this world. I mean, we are so blessed to have automobiles. And this might not be popular with your listeners, but, you know, it's really a first world problem to think about, I have to pay Mm -hmm. this much for gas. We go to Europe on vacation pre-pandemic and we would see their gas prices and we might complain about it, but we paid those prices. Mm -hmm. Um, Sometimes I think Americans, um, we've we've gotten used to things not being as expensive as perhaps they really are. Well, speaking of expensive, let's talk food because that is ridiculous. And I mean, it's like, I don't know how many more casseroles I can make, you know, I'm like, literally, it's going back to hamburger helper time because things are so expensive. And and I know there's options, but I'm not finding relief. It's horrifying. Right, right. Well, and so many Americans are in the same boat. You know, we're seeing those prices um, at the grocery store go up. Um, this is where a charitable component can come in. Um, Feeding America is the nation's largest network of food banks. There are 200 plus food banks in the United States and Puerto Rico covering every county. So no matter where you are listening to this broadcast, there is a food bank that serves your area. And there's two things you can think about. If you're doing okay and you these prices aren't impacting your 
you know, necessities, I would say, and you can make a charitable donation, I would make a recommend you make a charitable donation to Feeding America or your local, local food bank. You can go online, feedingamerica.org, and you can type in your zip code and it will pull up the food bank that serves your area so you could make a donation directly to them. And for those who are able to make donations, the good news is they have four to six times the buying power, meaning if you give $10, they can buy 40 to $60 worth of food because of their um, relationships and contracts that they have. And for every dollar you donate, it's 68 meals are provided. And what's shocking is that in the first year of the pandemic, 2020, 60 million Americans accessed food banks for food. That's 20% of our population. That's a huge number. So on the other side is if that you can't access, if you don't have extra in your budget and you need to access food banks, they're there for all of us to be able to access. Um, there's no judgment. Um, there's no questioning. Um, they often encourage you um, if you're if you're below the poverty line and you're eligible for SNAP, which is the Supplemental Nutritional Assistance Program, what we used to call food stamps in the old days, um, they encourage you to sign up for that, especially if you have small children. So there's ways that you can supplement what you're able to put on the table by accessing a food bank. You know, the, uh, the Jewels food stores in the greater and lesser Chicagoland area always have a thing there when you're checking out, at least when I go in there and you can add a dollar to the food bank. I mean, it's, it's 10 dimes, it's four quarters, it's a hundred pennies. I, you know, my dad was a banker. So everything to me breaks down into some sort of coin. And I think about this, how just a dollar, as you mentioned, can help. And if, you know, if 300 people that day throw a buck in over the top of whatever they're paying, it makes a difference. And maybe sometimes I think Lisa, the challenge is we don't see the difference. We're not around when they dole this stuff out. But I will tell you, just a, a couple blocks from where I live in the western suburbs of Chicago, there is a food bank. And I see people lining up there every single day, as I do uh, a couple of the churches that do this. And this is a challenge that, as you mentioned, with 20% of our population being in this position, um, there is something reciprocal about this. You know, I've there's been a few times in my life, not a lot, but there's been a few times where I thought, how am I going to pull this off? And I never had to ask for it, but the help usually would show up. And, and, and I think one of the most difficult things in my life was to go from being super producer at Oprah radio to unemployment line and mm -hmm. standing with people who could not find work. I'm thinking, I got an F in college degree. Do you know who I used to be? What am I doing in this line? Been uh, there, done that. Right. I know. So <laughs> yeah. we can, we can relate to that stuff. And so I think once you've been in that position, you're maybe more compassionate, empathetic to people who are, are going through things like that now. So for me, it is a zero no-brainer to do something. And Jen, you're always talking about, you know, what you put out comes back kind of thing. And for, when you give out money, whether it's a dollar or 10 bucks or whatever, and you know it's headed towards a certain thing like a food bank, it comes back to you in ways you could never predict later. Right. You can also it, give donating your time or sweat equity, which is something that you always encourage, Lise, for people to show mm -hmm. up and help at the food depositories to package things or what have you. If you can't give financially, give some of your time. Absolutely. I, I always recommend that. And I started doing that during the pandemic. You know, before the pandemic, my life was so incredibly busy. You know, I had this life where, you know, any night I could go to three different galas or four different functions. And, you know, most of the time complained about it because, oh my gosh, you know, I have to, I'm running around every night of the week. But when life slowed down during the pandemic, I made a commitment to go to the food bank um, in Chicago where I live and you know, volunteer. And it is the most rewarding experience. They're very organized, very structured, um, make it easy. We've got great music playing. Not Jeremiah was a bullfrog, but <laughs> you know, uh, we, we can hopefully get them there. But um, it, it was amazing. And there again, there's no judgment. You know you're doing well um, by helping other people. And it does come back to you. You know, there's other things you can do, too. You can think about... Um, you know, growing a vegetable garden. Um, I live in the city, so I do herbs and vegetables on my on my deck. You know, tomatoes and basil and parsley, and I feel like I'm a farmer. You know, but there mm -hmm. people across the street. One of my neighbors came to visit, and she was she commented on it because they did the whole side of the garage. They built. I don't know, whatever you call it, racks, and they planted things. And they have a sign that says, 
you know, this is a community garden. If you see something you'd like, feel free to take it, you know, but don't take it all. Leave some for the rest of us. They have scissors, so they have herbs. They grow cucumbers and squash. And I'm like, wow, what a really cool thing to do. And that reminded me of a neighbor of mine, basil plant on her front porch that went crazy. And she's like, please, people come and take the basil. So, you know, I think if we, if we, I can't do anything about what it costs in the grocery store except to say, you know, make a grocery list and, and clip coupons. I am right. a coupon queen. I am always mm-hmm. like, how much did I save this week? Right. <laughs> how much did I save? Um, but I would say that, and you know, learning new dishes and adding mm-hmm. those herbs and those spices or those fresh fruits and vegetables. Farmers markets are great places to go. You know, we know we want to support our farmers. I know they can be a little bit more expensive for our pocketbook, but um, some of them have charitable components. Our the organization that founds them might be municipality or a nonprofit. So there's ways that through food that we can support either those that are um, giving the food away. Or if you need to access food, there is no shame at all. And there is no questioning with the food banks. You know, um, you are in the situation you're in and you need to feed your family. You need to feed yourself. You know, there's a term that's going around that I want to share with your listeners called food insecure. Yeah. And it's about people not knowing where their next meal is coming from. Or the mom who waters down the milk because there's not enough milk in the Mm -hmm. gallon to go around for breakfast in the morning. Or the dad who skips supper, saying he ate a big lunch when he was really hungry, but there's not enough food. Or a child who's never had a second helping of anything because there's not enough on the table. You know, that's a problem. That is a problem in our country when we are supposed to be, you know, one of the most generous groups of people and wealthiest countries on earth that we can't take care of our own. So if nothing else, listeners, be aware that food banks exist. And perhaps there's a way for you to get involved either through volunteering or making a charitable donation or at that checkout. You know, it's not just Thanksgiving and Christmas when we think about people being hungry. Hunger is 365, 24-7. Yeah. Last couple of minutes we have together with you. Uh, Before we cut loose, where can people find you and all this information again? Uh, Lisa Dietlin on online, Lisa Dietlin on social media. And my website is Lisa Dietlin, D-I-E-T-L-I-N. Dot com. And I do want to share one fun thing. Um, you just know, one? Just one fun thing? Well, Not I got three? a lot of fun things, but oh, you know, okay. I don't want to run over time. But um, there, Jen, you let in about, you know, people perhaps retooling their summer plans and, you know, the great, you know, summer migration to the beaches and vacation. Um, I recommend two things. Staycation, you know, exploring your community, your local community, museums, historical societies, trails you haven't hiked. And also thinking about camping in Chicago, do the two of you know that the Forest Preserve, through the Forest Preserve Foundation, um, has a camping library? And you can check out camping equipment to go camping. In the forest preserves you know, I to might, learn. I might pay a couple bucks to see Weigel camp. Hey. <laughs> I, I think the three of us should go camp. Oh. <laughs> and hey, bring I that could, brown liquid. There you go. That'll keep us, you know, well, we don't have to worry about keeping warm. I, I can outdoors it there, Johnny. I know you Is that a fact? Yeah. No, I don't see it at all. Don't see it. Nope. Uh, but I thought that was really interesting when people go, wow, you know, I, I can't afford to buy a tent and sleeping bags and a cook stove. It is just like a regular library where you check out the camping equipment, you go and use it, and you bring it back. How cool it. is that? That is. I cool. see a remote broadcast okay. from the Shawnee Forest somewhere with the, <laughs> the doled out equipment. You know, the stuff hasn't been unpacked since, like, Eisenhower was president. No. <laughs> right. How are we going to get our Wi-Fi there, John? <laughs> yeah, yeah Wi-Fi going. Come in. <laughs> But I, I would say explore your local community. You know, I know if, if you're like me and a news junkie, you can feel doom and gloom when you're listening to, you know, rising gas prices, rising food prices, rising, rising, rising. But there's ways that you can still have that joyful life and that happiness in your life by just doing a little bit of looking behind in your community and seeing what's available. Talk, talking to your neighbors, finding out what they're doing. Um, some of the best memories are exactly what you shared at the top of the show, John. Um, an impromptu visit, uh, gathering because a friend's coming to town. Yeah, that's right. And you get that brown pop. And we're all good. And we're all, 
that's, and everything. That's going with us camping. Yeah. Yes, the right. Chicago roots came out. You there said you go. Pop. Get that brown pop. You don't say soda here. They'll put you in jail. <laughs> Gotta say, pop. absolutely yeah. will. Lisa D, thanks so much for stopping by again. As you're one of our regular contributors, actually the only other contributors are Weigel and myself at this point. Yeah, so that's I good. Say. That's pretty cool. <laughs> Hope you come back, on. <laughs> I definitely will come back. There's much more to talk about. So every time she's on, uh, I always have ideas about what else I can do, and I do a lot already. And I think uh-huh. that's what I wanted to kind of the last you know little run of the show here talk about. The things that, that impressed me the most is someone like Lisa who has been doing this for so long and she continues to do more of the same. Mm-hmm. And I've known you long enough that you're like that. You, th- oh, What else can I do? What else can I do? And at some point in my life, and maybe we were talking about it last week, we were talking about uh, you know trying to civilize the listeners and they didn't ask to be civilized. Mm-hmm. I believe there are people that don't say, what can I do? They say, what can I get? Yes. And there's a difference. Mm-hmm. And I think that Part of it, it has to do with some sort of energetic way of moving in the world that if you've been in positions where you didn't have enough or you had some difficulty or whatever, part of the reason that you're in that position is so when you're out of it, you can help people who are in it because just like you were. And yet there are people who I know that have gone through difficulty and say, screw it, I don't care, doesn't matter. And there's limits to everything. Can't give it all away. I get that. But any thoughts on your end as far as like, you know, because you're the in-house spiritual guru, Miss Wilder. Oh, you know? Oh, yeah. Well, I, I feel like you can't have empathy for something if you haven't experienced it yourself. And so that, that's the that's the story I'm telling myself now on these bumps that have been very big speed bumps in my world. And I mean, I, I talk about it very honestly in my writing, but I went from having a six-figure salary and, and two houses, you know, talk about first world problems, to living over a garage with my son. I mean, things really turned upside down for us. And I had to really create a new reality for us and uh, rely on the love of others and generosity of others to kind of get through that very difficult dark night of the soul. And once, you know, and I'm still human, I still have dark nights of the soul moments and days and weeks and whatnot, but I know on the other side of it, that I can breathe and I know that there is something bigger going on here and that at the end of the day, there always is an option. We can always find somebody like Lisa talked about, you know, when the pandemic hit, do you really need to use your car every day? No, you don't. Do you really, can you connect with your community and have a roommate and, you know, whatever it is that you need to do to get creative for your income, find a skill set you didn't realize that you had. You dig deep into your soul like that when you have these trying times and you realize what you're capable of and then you get instead of from what can you do for me universe to what can I do for the greater good and once you flip that into how can I serve how can I help how can I deal in you get out of victimhood and into victorious and it changes Mm. reminds me of uh, President Kennedy who said ask not what your country can do for you Mm -hmm. but what you can do for your country and that ties into a, a trip that I had a week ago I was in Arlington Virginia at the cemetery first trip there and to see, for me, to see the JFK Memorial where he's buried, the eternal flame, was very emotional. Yeah. Uh, I was just a little guy when he was assassinated, but I remember clearly sitting on my grandfather's knee who was just bawling his eyes out. My grandpa Carl came from Sweden with nothing in his pocket and you know, built his life like so many people have. And he saw that as the end of a dream for him. You know, he only, he, my grandfather died in 1965, so just a couple years later. And I remember how that affected him. So when I got to there in Arlington and I stood there in front of that flame, I, of course, thought of him more than anything. My grandfather sacrificed. Of course, I also came going, really? Was it worth it, all this? I mean, come on. I mean, come on. We're, this is as good as we're going to get. But it also reminds me of the, and Arlington is just rift with history. You know, it's just, it, it, you can't not go there and see over 400,000 headstones mm-hmm. and say, yeah, maybe we come up with some better ideas than killing each other. I don't know. I don't know. Just thinking about it, you know, just an idea. And I was there for the burial of a friend of mine, Captain Jerry Coffey. Just a quick mention. He was uh, a prisoner of war in Vietnam for seven years and nine days. One of the longest held POWs, along with uh, former Senator John McCain. And uh, to, to be there for his military honors and his burial was, was another emotion of uh, level for me. It was a very difficult thing. And but when I came away from there, I, I was rejuvenated. I was not depressed. I wasn't down. I thought, maybe there's more I can do. 
I don't know what that is. I don't know where that is. But I think that's the mindset we're talking about here when you're in this giving place is like, what else can I do? And the, the secret to me is the more you give, the more you receive it. It never, at least from my experience, comes back the same way you gave it out. But it does come back. And that alone, it's like, it's like Wayne Dyer used to say, how people treat you is their karma. How you respond is yours. That should be in everybody's mind. I get everybody doesn't understand that or even care. But if you get it and you, you lift yourself out of the slime and the ooze a little bit, life gets pretty interesting. It does get interesting. And, and we get out of taking it all personally. You know, that's another one of the gurus I interviewed over the years, Don Miguel Ruiz, who wrote the book, The Four Agreements. Don't take it personally. Somebody else's behavior is not about you. Unless you're plotting their demise and they're picking up on it or find out about right, it, right. then they could be mad at you and that's legitimate. But if they're just reacting, I remember when I was a columnist for the Chicago Tribune and this person was being so rude to me and I was like, what did I do? What? Did I, I made it all about me that they didn't like my writing. They must not like my pitches. They must, they must, they must. It was all about their reaction to me. And once I got out of my own head and out of my own way, found out that she was dealing with somebody in her world who was dying of lung cancer. It was very much not about me. We get so self-centered in that reaction to other people's behavior. I, I was literally talking to a friend just this week. She was so mad someone didn't return her email, and it's been several weeks. And she said, I'm going to send them a note because they claim they're spiritual, and I'm going to say this, and I'm going to say that. And I said, whoa, 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 whoa. How do you know they don't have a sick kid? How do you know they don't have a sick parent? Or maybe they had a significant tragedy in their life or somebody lost a job or somebody drove their car through the living room. Who knows? Like right, we don't right. know until we know. So to think that it's about them and that you want to lash out and say, you didn't do this. You know, I, I think about that a lot. I get a lot of emails from people. I can't answer them all right away. Sometimes it takes me weeks to get back I to know, people. I know. I got like five you haven't answered. I don't take it <laughs> ever. I'm like, you know what? She doesn't care. <laughs> I texted you or I texted Lisa and I said, you know, I can't keep up with this thread. It was like 18 emails (laughs) in. I just said, give me the, give me the bullet points right now. You got, yeah. So yes, I am not the best at answering emails, but sometimes they come through and I'm sitting there waiting for my oil change and boom, I'll respond right then and there. And people write back, I can't believe you wrote me back. And then they write me back and then it takes me three weeks to respond to the second one. And they (laughs) go, well, what did I do wrong? What did I say? It's not about you. So I say that to the audience to remember Sometimes we can't take it personally, really. It's not about us. Unless, like I said, you're plotting their demise, and then it absolutely is about you, and you need to do better. <laughs> yeah, you do. And, you know, to me, in a lot of ways, this technology that is really, really incredible and amazing. It allows you and I to talk and bring Lisa mm-hmm. Dion or have guests on and do all the music. And we're on in Washington, D.C., WCRW, 1190 AM, mm-hmm. uh, and at com around the world. That's really friggin' incredible. I mean, it's, yeah. it's really... When you really sit back, I'm like, that's really amazing that this happens. And the fact that, you know, I can text you, what it just goes through the air. I don't know how it works. Yeah. It just shows up in your, you know. So these are truly amazing things that I think have warped our sense of perspective because we think they should operate as we think they should and without knowing how the technology works or, as you say, who the receiver on the other, what they're going through, or what they're not going through, you know, and, mm-hmm. and those ups and downs. But it reminds me a little bit of the, the specific adaptation to impose demands principle. We're going to have a kinesiology class before the show's over, kids. There you go. And you, you, we adapt to the demand placed on us or we don't. And when you think about just the influx of emails each of us get or the text messages or the voicemails. I mean, the last thing I use this supposed phone for is to call someone. It's not a phone. No. It's no. like Kirk's communicator off Star Trek is what it is. Mm-hmm. So... But we get conditioned to that, that something should happen. And listen, as a parent, I'll be in full disclosure, say, you know, if I text my kids and they're not back to me, and not, depends on the day, and I know they're working and stuff, but I still feel like if they haven't texted me by the end of the day, what the hell's going on here? What's wrong? You know? Right. But that's right. a concern thing more than it is like a, a electronically generated impulse and response. Mm-hmm. And to other people, you know, I put my phone mostly on vibrate. I don't even want to hear it anymore. Right. And it's those type of things that technology piece, I think, is just as incredible as it is. And as much as it brought us together, I think in some ways it actually helps push us apart, which isn't always a good or bad thing, I guess. Well, just like you mentioned the texting and how is it that we're broadcasting this signal that people are hearing now through their radio or through their headset or whatever it is, we are all signals and we are all broadcasting signals. So 
energy is real. This is metaphysics, okay? This isn't woo-woo. So if you put out and you broadcast nothing but toxicity and ego and I'm right, you're wrong, and I'm good and you're bad and blah, 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 you know, energy doesn't know what right or wrong is. It just knows vibration. And as you mentioned kinesiology, a lower vibration is ego, apathy, shame, anger, mistrust, all of those things. That is a choice to put out that lower vibration or the higher one, which is love and above, right? Anything above love is, you know, you're golden. So I'd say this all the time to my son, let's put out more love and above because if you don't really anger, fear, shame, all of those are vibrations that are there because of a lack of love. They're only mean and angry because they're afraid. If love were in the equation, they wouldn't be mean or angry. You can't be low vibe if you're in love. It's not possible. It's not that they're not the same floor on the building. They're in different buildings. Mm. They don't coexist. So think about that when you broadcast, you know, just like we are right now broadcasting this show. What are you broadcasting from your antenna right now? Think about that this week. With your permission, I mean this with all due respect as one of my closest and dearest friends and, you know, cohorts in this business. But when you say the word broadcast, all I hear is Harry Carey. <laughs> Can I say it? Please. Broadcasting. There it where's, is. Where's Dutchie broadcasting from today? This is a guy who used to broadcast from without a shirt on in center field <laughs> at Wrigley. It was not good. And there was something I couldn't catch. I was looking for it online while you were talking. Something to do. You know, there's a big contest every year and they have... People come to Harry Carey's restaurants here in Chicago, and he was a legendary sports broadcaster, St. Louis, with White Sox, with Chicago mm-hmm. Cubs, and um, just a colorful character, larger than life, and he had that, that way of speaking, mm-hmm. and people come to Chicago, and they have these contests to talk like him, and I entered a few, but I just don't have the pipes like I used to to do it, mm-hmm. uh, but I was looking for it because you say broadcasting, I know what you're saying, but what I hear is, play ball! Very good. Well, it's that time of year, so let's get to the Cubs game soon. Oh, and after we go camping, we'll go to the Cubs game. (laughs) (laughs) Bring your own hair dryer. (laughs) You have to have hair to do a hair dryer. So I have quills. Mm -hmm. I pretty much can. I don't have hair anymore. In my head, it's quills. It's much like a porcupine. Okay. And when I go to the barber, when he cuts my hair, I can hear it click, click, like little sticks. That's good. That's low maintenance. You know what? Mm -hmm. Bright side of everything. Well, Mm -hmm. it's been fun, but we're done. Miss Weigel, take it away. It's always here and it's always there. And I'm Jen Weigel. We'll see you next time. I'm John St. Augustine. We are over and out. Be safe until next time. Keep the faith.